I actually want to uh, build upon and, and honor the, the good work that Mike and Alicia did uh, last week in that message about the ultimate good and just a real, um, just honest message as talking about the facing suffering at times in life. And Micah did some incredible exegetical work in the book of Romans that I want to highlight for a moment and, and build on it. And it was cool, not coincidentally or not surprisingly, uh, this theme had been on my heart for the last few weeks as well, and I was meditating on a particular verse uh, in James that we're going to get into this morning. But what Mike pointed out so beautifully, among other things, Romans eight twenty eight and 29 says this, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brethren. So Micah drew the point, which is astoundingly important, that when we face challenges in life, when we even face suffering, that there is a redemptive power that can be at work, that is at work in all things. Now, let me be very clear, which Alicia did a beautiful job of last Sunday, of clarifying that all things are not from God. Jesus makes that abundantly clear in one of our favorite verses in John 10.10, 10, where he says, there is a thief, there is an enemy, you have an adversary who comes to steal kill, and destroy. So <laughs> when things in life are stolen, when there is loss, pain, death, destruction, Jesus just told you the source of that, and it's not God. It's your enemy, your adversary, who prowls around like a roaring liar, desiring to kill you and devour you. And in contrast, Jesus says, but I, but I, have come, representing the heart of the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You want to know the Father's heart? Look at me, Jesus says. But I have come that you may have life to its abundance, to its perfection, to its overflowing goodness. And so we see right there a contrast that Jesus preaches, that not all things in life are from God. We have to keep that straight. The things that cause pain, death, and destruction are the work of the enemy. The good gifts of life that bring that overflowing, those overflowing tastes and encounters of heaven, those are the good gifts that Jesus brings. But here's the redeeming power of God that Micah pointed out. In all the things, though, that happen, God's power of redemption is so good and so powerful, he can work it together for your good, for your ultimate good. Not to say the thing itself is good, but God can work it in his redeeming power for your ultimate good. And what is that? And this is where Micah did that incredible work. Typically, if you want to know the answer, just keep reading in the Bible. <laughs> it's usually the story. What is that ultimate good? What is that purpose that God has for us ultimately in life. And it's the next verse. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image 
of his son. That is the ultimate good that God has for us in life, the ultimate purpose, to be transformed and conformed into the image of Jesus. Or as 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, as we behold Jesus, we get to know him, we are transformed from one degree of glory to another into his image. And that's the greatest news in the world, to be able to become like Jesus in our character. There is no greater good. And so there is a redeeming power of God at work in the world, in your life, in the good and the bad, to transform us into the image of his son. That is where hope lies. And I want to build on that this morning. My brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect, it's not a typo, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James 1, 2, and 4. Let me share kind of the picture, the sense I feel kind of prophetically that God has been putting on my heart about this verse, and then we'll dig into the, the meat of the Scripture I love God's word and how he can speak to us with just one phrase, even one word. And that's what happened a few weeks back in this particular verse. And it's this. As I was reading, the word meet stood out. Count it all joy, brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. When you meet them. It's just an interesting picture. When you meet them. And I kind of had this picture of, of the Lord saying to me and, and asking, are you willing to go meet trials face to face? Or do you, you, do, do you do your best to just avoid them? Other translations say, when you face trials of various kinds. And so there's this picture there of facing a trial head on. And I felt like that's what the Lord was highlighting with that word meet. And it's like a battlefield. You know, those fiery darts are coming our way in life one way or another. You cannot get away from the fact that this is a broken and fallen and hurting world. And so we will encounter those things coming our way. The brokenness of the world hits us. The fiery darts of the enemy come. Unfortunately, we cannot get around the fact in this life that that is a reality. The fiery darts are in the air coming our way, and so we have two choices. And this is what the picture God was painting. Either we can meet them on the battlefield where we have full strength because we got our armor, we got our shield of faith, and we got a sword to fight, and we can overcome. We can take our stand, as, as God's Word tells us to, and overcome the onslaught of the enemy, or we can do our best to kind of turn and run. And by doing that, expose ourselves to just get pummeled in the back. We're defenseless when we're doing this. So he's like, shield up, armor up, sword ready. And it's just this picture of when things are hard in life, what is our mindset? Do we do our best to just avoid it, hope it goes away, run away from it, or do we meet it on the battlefield. 
I believe if we can develop the mindset of I'm going to meet it on the battlefield, that is right there a huge step towards victory in the midst of that trial. If we have the mindset, which is understandable and natural, that we kind of want to turn and run and avoid it, that's only going to make it more painful in the long run. And so God calls us as Christians to be courageous people who, knowing trials are going to come, and it's inevitable, though unfortunate and painful, are we going to decide ahead of time that we're going to meet them on the battlefield, face on, and in God's power with us, take a stand and overcome? Now let's get into God's Word and see where that bears out. Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Perfect. (laughs) That is not a typo. Talk about a discipleship mindset, a learner's mindset, a lifelong learner's mindset. If you ever get complacent or content or lukewarm or feel that you have arrived, you are way outside of the biblical picture of what God wants for your life. He wants you to keep growing until you're perfect. So yeah, yeah, raise your hand if you're done. Yes, you raised your hand and I agree with you. No, I'm just kidding. Let's look at this word perfect. It's the word telos in the Greek. It has a beautiful, beautiful, deep and rich meaning in the New Testament. It means, it has very much a sense of a goal or a purpose, an end to which something is created, like a divine destiny, like a telos, the telos of something. Oh man, that's a rich word. Attaining an end or purpose, reaching a goal with a sense of divine destiny. So let me go back into last week's message where Micah pointed out the telos of God, the purposes of God in his redeeming power in Romans 8.29. The telos of your life as a follower of Jesus is this, Romans 8.29, to be conformed to the image of his Son. That is the telos of your life. That is the goal. That is the completeness. That is the divinely given design and destiny. Another word, another, excuse me, verse where this word was used, and it brings these ideas together, the idea of our perfection, our telos, the goal, us being perfected is to be like Christ. That's the goal of God for our lives. Ephesians 4, 12 and 13 says it like this, that God gave all the gifts in the body of Christ in order to, let's pick it up, equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach a unity in the faith and in the knowledge, which is experience, of the Son of God and become 
perfect. It says mature. Another translation, it's the word telos. Attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So, God gave spiritual gifts in the body. God gave us a community, which, by the way, so if you choose to live outside the community, this is not going to happen. God gave gifts in the body of Christ. He gave us a community in order that we might be built up. And maturity, like to me, that's a little bit weak in the translation because it's then, it's, it's then expounded upon what the meaning of that word telos in this context is, is expounded upon in the next phrase when it says, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. That's a little bit more than maturity, right? Because, I mean, a lot of us in this room are like, yeah, we've been walking with God for a long time, so we're, we're mature. Okay, fair enough. You ain't perfect, <laughs> right? You have not attained to the fullness of the full measure of Christ-likeness. So I, I think perfection or perfect is a better translation here. It's like the gifts of God have been given us until we become perfect, attaining the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Now, is that, the reality is, is that going to happen in this life? No, but that's God's goal is that we would be continually from one degree of glory to another, moving in the direction of Christ-like perfection. It's right there in the Bible. <laughs> it's good news. So the best thing that can happen in a trial is that we come through it more Christ-like. And that's the point of this verse. James says, we can count it joy because there is an opportunity in trials. You can come through it more Christ-like. He says it right there in the verse. Let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So he actually, I've just been talking about one word, perfect. He uses three different adjectives to say the same thing. Perfect, we've already talked about, is that divinely given design and destiny to become more like Jesus. That's our telos. And then he goes on to say, and complete, which says it's whole, having all the necessary qualities, having integrity. That Christ-likeness is like integral with, in, into all of our being, holy gone through us and transformed us, lacking in nothing. That's quite a phrase. You go through trials, and the redeeming power of God can take you out on the other end so that you're lacking in nothing. Wow. That's a promise. This, this, is, this is the good news about God's redemptive power for what he can and wants to do in the midst of those trials that come our way. So trials can be the pathway to perfection if we respond well. And that's in the verse. Trials can be that pathway to perfection, but there is a lot on our end that has to do with our choice. Fiery darts are going to come our way. 
How we respond is everything, and that gets back to that sense of are we going to turn and run because it's just hard and scary and fearful and I'm anxious. You're probably just going to get those darts in the back, and it's just going to ultimately bring more pain in life. But if you can meet the trial on the battlefield with the armor of God, the sword of the Spirit, the shield of faith, the promise of what God wants to do, which is transform you to be more perfected like Christ, there's a completely different outcome. Look at James 1, 4, where he says, let steadfastness have its full effect in order that, it just says that, but the Greek, the, the, the hina word, the honi word is in order that, so there's a, there's a if-then, kind of a causal relationship there. Let steadfast have its full effect. And that's in the imperative. So that's a choice on your part. It's a command. So that's something you've got to choose to do. Are you going to let the process have its full effect in order that you might be more perfect and complete, lacking in nothing? If you don't follow the commands of God, you don't experience the promises of God. The commands of God are His promises. The commands of God are God's good news of how we step into and live into his promises. So this is a command. Let it have its full effect. Don't hit the eject button. Don't just run and hide. Don't turn and try to get out of there to minimize pain. When you see the trial, do you go out and meet it head on? This is not a small question because the natural tendency as humans, when something's hard, is to avoid it. Protect yourself. Be creative in a myriad of different ways on how you can not feel the pain. I mean, and the number one response when, we, when things are hard is we just want it to stop. We want out. And, and our culture is, is really pushing us in this direction to be conflict-averse Conflict avoidant, except on social media, which is psychotic. I mean, it is. It's really creating psychosis in people where you just say mean, awful, nasty things that you would never have the courage to say to someone in, per in person. So it's creating a, a whole mess of, of weirdness in how we do relationships. But we all know conflict face-to-face -face is hard, right? And our culture just avoid it. You don't like your job, you don't like your boss, find a new one. You don't like your wife, it's a little bit too much conflict, find a new one. I mean, listen to the, the ways of our culture and how these things are just being, I mean, the, the BS around marriage nowadays as far as like, you just see the, the stars, the celebrities, not that they're supposed to be our examples, but they are in creating culture. And it's just this like, oh, you know, it was hard, we grew apart, love Love, you know, faded, and so we just went our separate ways. And it's like, yeah, marriage is hard because you're in it. You are the problem. I am the problem. You're not the problem. I'm the problem. We're broken and fallen people. Trials come in many instances because of the weaknesses of our character that we've brought 
those trials upon ourselves at times. We brought conflict upon ourselves. And the, check yourself, the human reaction is just avoid it, run, find something new, start over, it's easier. Versus see the battlefield in front of you and meet it head on and say, God, would you grow my character to be more like you through this? That would be victory for me. Jesus said it like this, talking about the mindset of are we going to choose hard on purpose or are we going to take the easy way? Because this is against human nature. They're, they're, you, you can't do this without a promise in mind, without a redemptive promise in mind. And Jesus points it out like this, Matthew 7, 13 and 14. Enter by the narrow gate. So he's talking about the kingdom of God, all of the goodness, that abundance, that overflowing transformation of heaven that Jesus wants to bring. He says, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it are many. And the gate is narrow, the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Those words should be etched into our life. There's a really good chance that if you're on the easy road, it's the road of destruction. Hard is the way that leads to God's abundant life. Is that in our minds? Or do we look for the easy way? I mean, our culture is, oh, just be comfortable. You deserve it. I mean, I, 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 I am shocked at the advertising. Well, watch out for that word deserve. It's all over advertising. And, and, it, and it does something nefarious to our soul, which tells us that if it's not fast and cheap and easy, I deserve better. Which is a lie from the pit of hell, because Jesus says if it's fast, cheap, and easy, you're probably on your road to hell. Hard is the path towards the abundant life. But check yourself. I mean, I, I saw one yesterday, and it was about the speed of the internet on my phone. And the advertisement, it was like the unlimited coverage you deserve. Because if you have to wait three seconds for the page to load on your phone, your rights are being oppressed. So if anything is easy in my life, I'm out. I deserve better. As all the fiery darts hit me on my way. It's facts. Just, and I'm, only, I'm saying it because it's me. I've been, I've been consumed. I, I consume this mindset if I see anything in the world. So we have to fight against it and say, what mindset am I approaching life with? Am I willing and looking for the opportunities to meet trials on the battlefield? Because I know that the hard way, Jesus said, is going to be the abundant life. I just, I mean, even a couple light-hearted examples that show us that this is, this is our world. So 
One of my, two of my sons, in the last week, I would say, true, true stories. And it's just, I share these to say, look, it's everywhere. We got to constantly be aware and say, God, would you renew my mind with scripture? So, uh, Pax, my little guy, he, this week, this Monday afternoon, so we had the privilege Thanks to some generosity from our oldest son's landlord as he lives in, in Catalina. We got to house sit for them. They went on a cruise. We got to stay in their house for free. It was a really fun, beautiful thing. Got to go visit my son, be there for Thanksgiving. And so we were gone a whole week. And so my son, my little guy, missed his Taekwondo lessons. And he had missed the prior week because he was not feeling good. And so he, and he missed a, a testing, so some of his compadres are at a higher level now and so I, I was out on Monday and not at home at the time and, and, and working and I get a call and, and he's like daddy I, I really don't want to go to Taekwondo I have anxiety about it and he's like you know and we're gonna the, the plan is all ready to stop at the end of December and it, we've done six months that was his commitment and then we're gonna he wants to play basketball in the, in the January so we're moving in that direction but you know I just, I just want to quit now. I'm like, all right, let's tell me more. Like, what are you upset about? What? And he kind of lays out. You know, it's like, well, I, I missed two weeks in a row, so I'm going to be behind, and I'm not, you know, I'm not, it's not going to, I'm not going to look good. My friends are ahead of me. They, they did their testing. They're already passed. I, you know, so I have anxiety about it. I, just, I just want to quit now. Whew. There it is. It's hard. You're anxious bounce. And, you know, we talked through it, and I said, you know, buddy, like, I, I know that if you go tonight, you'll be okay. You'll do good. The master said, you do a great job. You work hard. You listen good. So I know, you know, you missed a week, but you know what? Everybody missed last week, too, because Thanksgiving was off. And, you know, it doesn't really matter that your friends got ahead of you. You're like a week behind. You can, you can grind those practices, and you'll be testing again in a couple weeks. And, you know, furthermore, buddy, you made a commitment to me, and I've already paid the money. And I'm serious. I said this. You committed, to, you committed that you would do this for six months, and I had to pay ahead of time to get a really good deal. Well, you have another month. So between being a man of your word that follows through on commitments and the fact that I know you can do this, you need to go tonight. What a horrible dad I am, all right? Well, guess what? He went, and at the end of it, Totally fine. He didn't die. I know I'm such an awful dad. He said anxiety. And I said, too bad. You're going to be fine. And he was totally fine. And you know what? I believe he got stronger through it. Because instead of me allowing him to let anxiety talk to him and then get bigger and bigger to where he develops a pattern of when I'm scared, I bounce. I said, no, you can do better than that. And he did, and I believe he got a bit stronger. Now, I'm not saying in every situation when someone says anxiety, you just say, suck it up, buttercup, you're a wuss, go for it. Like, that's not always the answer. That's not. I'm not trying to say that, okay? But just look at the patterns. Same thing. Now go to our middle son this week. A comment in the car as he's driving me home, which is a little scary and a little fun, driving me home. From his school, which at that point we go side roads, not ready for the freeway. It's an hour. And he says this Thank you for forcing me to take driver's ed. Why? 
Wait, what happened? He's like, well, we're in class today, and my teacher just asked this question and raised, raised, raise your hands. He's a sophomore, he's 16. Raise your hands. How many of you uh, are either in driver's led, driver's ed or have your driver's license? He said, and it was really cool because it was only me and one other guy, Xavier, who even raised our hands. It's like, wow. So how many people are in your class? He was 24. It's like, wow. So two out of 24 16-year-olds have even started the process of driver's ed, and you're all 16. Like, man, I remember when I was 16 on the day, I'm already working a mostly full-time job in the summer with my dad, and I was so excited to go to the you know, DMV on my 16th birthday in like the 1992 Ford Ranger stick shift and get my license and then go back to work and get to go do deliveries for my dad's company driving solo. And it happened. But I'm just, so dig a little deeper here. And we, we started talking about it. And go back to that phrase, thank you for making me. Well, about, you know, five months ago in the summer when Daniel had the time off, I'm like, hey, buddy, it's time to start driver's ed. He's like, oh, no, 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 I, I don't want to. I'm scared. Same thing. You're scared. Well, in some ways, you should be because a car can be lethal. So appropriate awe and respect. No, 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 no I'm, I'm not scared that way. I'm just, I'm just scared. It's interesting. So two out of 24, what are they? They're scared. Scared of what? Life. I think the culture is coming. Be scared of everything. Pandemics and this and that. Just, just scared. Be scared. Be fearful. That's been the message the last few years. Well, guess what? People have caught the message. I'm scared of what? I don't know. Just life. To, to step out and do hard things. And so... I told him, same exact message as my other one. You know what? You can do this. I truly believe in you. We'll go slow. There's training for a reason. You don't just, just, here you go, go on the freeway. It's like, no, I'll be with you. You got drivers. We practice. You take classes. You can do this. I believe in you. I know your skills. And also, by the way, we need your help. As a family, you being able to drive will help us. So, nah, not cool. You're going to stay in your room and just play video games this summer and not contribute to the family? Not happening. You're going to take this class because you can help the family, and you'll be okay. So it was cool because that was just kind of another place where I was an awful dad, and I just told him what he's doing. Fast forward four months. He got to kind of like, you know, puff up his chest a little bit in front of the whole class because only two out of 24 are having the courage to step out and do something that's scary. Well, he didn't really have the courage. He just got pushed out. But he's saying thank you. And now he has the courage. Now he's growing in the courage. What was scary, and he would literally just say, no, I don't want my driver's license. Why? Why do I need to? You drive me everywhere. And I can just have more free time right now. And I'm scared. No, God has better for you. And, and those are real-life examples, but it's us, too. I'm no better in the challenges, in the way that I'm tempted to respond to challenges. When hard things come my way, am I just looking for a reason to bail? Or am I going to have this biblical mindset that says, no, it's good for me to face the trials head on with courage because God's redemptive power is at, is at work to transform me to be more like Jesus. Two little phrases to confirm this and finish it off. 
when it says, you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and steadfastness produces that perfecting, that perfection of like Christ. Testing is that literal word. It's a picture in the Bible of metal being refined. So you could remove testing and say refined. I think it's a little better. Testing, we, we kind of, we have a, we have a kind of a, a picture of like, do I pass the test? Do I do the right answers and pass the test? When the testing in this sense is more of a literal picture of a refining process, the literal words are without alloy. So it's the cheaper metals that are burned away in a refining process. And so put that into the scripture. For you know that the refining process produces steadfastness. When the cheaper things about your nature, when those weaker things about who you are come to the surface, that desire to just bounce, bail out, avoid pain, keep it easy, keep it comfortable, those are the cheaper alloys that are in all of us. When we meet trials face to face, when we choose to let steadfastness have its full effect and not bail out, our character will be refined to be more like Christ. That's a promise. So Christians are called to have a mindset that says, be courageous, meet the trial on the battlefield, knowing that meeting that trial head on will purify your faith and your character, perfecting you to be more like Jesus. That's a promise. Thus, we can walk more in power and victory like Jesus did. And lastly, just to confirm it, it's the first thing he said, count it all joy. It's so interesting. This is the first thing the brother of Jesus says in his pastoral letter to the churches. Other than like, hi, my name's James, bless you. Verse 2. It's the first thing he says. And I love the honesty. I love the rawness. He's like talking, hey, I know trials are coming. They're coming your way. We live in a broken and fallen world. Is there hope? And he starts off right. I mean, it's kind of heavy. He starts off, this is the nitty-gritty. This is raw. This is honest. This is not like slap a smile on and pretend everything's okay, Christianity. This is like, hey, I know you're going through trials. But there is hope. And he starts with this phrase, count it all joy. Let's circle that word joy and put a pause on it for a moment. Count it. That is, it literally means to hold a view, to have an opinion, to regard something. So in other words, this is about training ourselves to have a mindset when you face trials. What's your mindset? That's what he's saying. And so I'm saving it for last because in a sense, this is where it all comes down to. What is your mindset? Are you going to have a victorious mindset that by the end of the trial, you're more like Jesus? Count it. Count it. How are you counting trials? How are you looking at trials? What's your mindset when trials come? Is it the natural you, the weaker alloys that just want to push the eject and run and avoid? What is your mindset? Here's the thing. We all have a mindset going into trials. And James's encouragement is 
Let this promise of God transform your mind so that you have a new mindset, this mindset, to start his whole letter, this mindset, to go into life with. Count it. Joy when you face trials because of all the things we've said. Now, I'll say joy is the goal. Don't beat yourself up if your mindset when you face trials is not yet joy. Woo-hoo! This thing's really hard and painful. Let's do it, Jesus. Woo! I want to be that guy. I want to be transformed to be that guy. But there's grace in the process. So if your mindset is there's a trial coming, I want to run. I'm going. Forget about it. I don't care what pain it causes. Oh, no. I'm going to meet it. I'm going to face it. Because I trust God can transform my character through it. That'll do. (laughs) And here's what I believe happens. As you do that, just show up on the battlefield, meet it, let God's grace take over and transform you. What will actually happen is you will grow in a strength to where in hindsight, you know God's redeeming power in the midst of trials. So when the next one comes, in a sense, you've built a strength and a confidence in who God is, not you, in who God is. So next time, maybe you face a lesser trial, you can look at it in a way where there's a joy. There's like, a, oh, I've, been through, I've been through worse. I can laugh at this one because I know what God's doing. Where that gets hard is when you face a trial that's bigger than what you've faced before. And that's where it's like, okay, but let's just be realistic. Joy might not be there, but remembering what God has done in the past can be there to just turn your face away from running and meet it and let God take you from there. I think that's all I have to say about that. Hmm. That's a good word. It's a good word. Two things I want to add that he actually did already cover. But it is so important. So I want to read this verse again. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers, which all of us fall into one of those categories to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature or perfect Christ-like man and womanhood. So as we face these trials, if we aren't plugged into the body, and holding hands to face these battles together with the encouragement of others, we will set ourselves up to fail. We set ourselves up to fail. If life is hard and we're getting pummeled and we're not holding hands with the body, scripturally and according to the word of God, we can, if we are not following through with this, we can blame our lack of victory On that, just like if we're starving 
and we haven't eaten, we can say, oh, it's my fault, I haven't eaten. God has given us these very clear things to follow through on, and it's a strategy of victory that we're not meant to walk alone. We're meant to walk hand in hand with the rest of the body of Christ so that we can meet our battles head on as the victorious warrior armed up as the full body. Uh, another, another thing is that I, I felt like the Holy Spirit kind of putting a finger on. And, and I share one yeah. 30, second, no. 30 second thing on that word right there. In 15 years of full-time pastoral ministry, I've seen that more times. We've talked about it. We've worked through it. It's more times than we can count. When people go through their hardest things, they disappear, withdraw, isolate, and try to work it out on their own, and sometimes they never make it back. So just practically, don't be that person. Like the God's word, as she just pointed out, says we need each other. And so just let, let's never experience that again as a church family, where it's like, oh, what happened to that person? We don't know. They disappeared for six months, and we found out later they were just going through something really, really hard, and they isolated, and it took them out. Don't be that. Have that mindset of the promise of God to redeem and heal and restore and make you stronger, but it needs to be with each other. That's the power source he's given us. Mm -hmm. I want to read the beginning verse in Romans 8 again. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So in all of the trials, he wants to conform us into his son's image. And far too often in Christian culture, people come out of trials almost like with a gimp arm. And let me explain. If we're to become more like Jesus, that means that if we face sickness and command it to go, and even if we're not powerful, even if we haven't grown in our faith enough, like the disciples experienced when they couldn't cast out the demon, and even if we haven't grown to where we have seen the victory, if we haven't grown in power and faith to where we see the victory, if the enemy was bigger, so often we come out saying with terrible things like he talked about, like, oh, well, God wanted just to take my brother. <laughs> Don't attribute the work of the devil to the Messiah, to the Messiah. But the other thing is, we come out not facing the battle in all of its nuances, but retracting from those areas that we lost in. So we see in Christian culture a lot, people grew in perseverance and in patience and they love God. But because someone died and they didn't resurrect them, they've let that go. Well, guess what? Jesus raised the dead. 
Jesus raised the dead. And if we're supposed to be, become more like Jesus, then in every area of that battle where we need to see the kingdom of God break through, we need to be standing in agreement with God and facing head on every single area and declaring and agreeing with him and going on an adventure with him to see the kingdom break through in every way because becoming Christ-like and becoming transformed into the fullness of Christ does not mean that we withdraw and bury the parts where it looks like we lost and we let them die. It's become Christian culture. I see it all the time. We see it all the time. They get through a trial and they've, they're limping. Other parts are strong and vibrant because God is so good, but they let go. They let go of the part that they haven't seen the breakthrough in. They let go of it. So I just want to encourage us to walk in the fullness of Christ, to pursue being transformed in the fullness of Christ, and not let any single angle or part of the problem, don't allow it to sit and just put an excuse and don't not face the battle there because you haven't won yet or because you've lost in the past. And even coming out of the battle, if we didn't win, we can still, like the disciples, um, what, what verses were those? Was it Matthew, is it 7? The one where the disciples couldn't cast out um, the demon and the little boy. And then Jesus comes in. It's two locations in the Gospels, Luke and Matthew, and I'm blanking. I think it's 7. Um, but, you know, where they couldn't cast out the demon. And then um, essentially what Jesus says to them is you need to grow in your faith. And he says some things like this sometimes can, can only be cast out by prayer and fasting. Jesus neither prayed nor fasted in that moment. What he was referring to was a life, was, was a vault of intimacy with the Father and power. And he was encouraging his disciples to grow. And he didn't say, oh, well, I guess you lost that battle. At least you grew in other areas of character. We're just going to let that part go and walk away. He says, no, grow in your faith, and he casts out the demon. So I just, it's an encouragement to us not to allow the enemy to take out a limb that is supposed to be strong and mighty, reflect the character of God, and bring the kingdom of God to earth. Don't let him take us out and to have a keen eye to not allow that to happen. And in a, a, a way, hope is huge. If we feel hopelessness about any small area of a battle, that's your indicator that you need to press in to become more Christ-like, to have the faith of Christ, the belief of Christ, and the mindset of Christ so that you can command that problem to bow to Christ. Dance.